This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, we're in the book of Exodus. Uh, You will probably, uh, when I tell you what it's about this week, you'll probably think I'm really glad I came uh, because it's about the golden calf and it's pretty hard hitting. Uh, There's some serious stuff goes on in this story. And, um, you know, so I didn't think, all right, I know who's going to be here and I've chosen the golden calf this week because all you bunch of idolaters here, it's just where we are. So if you're a visitor, uh, and you think, oh, this church likes to lay it on heavy. This is where we are in the story. And that's what we let the Bible do the speaking. And hopefully we do that. So where we are, book of Exodus. Uh, God's people have been freed from slavery by what God describes as his mighty arm and his outstretched hand. He's brought them, it says, like on eagle's wings and brought them to himself. And we looked last week at how he rescued them, not for a bunch of rules, but he rescued them uh, for relationship. And we saw how in some ways, although you can look at lots of different ways uh, at the Ten Commandments, in some ways the, the Ten Commandments are, are a bit like marriage vows that, that, that the, the, the people of Israel make to, to God, that they'll be faithful to him, that they'll have no other gods but him, that they, they won't substitute him for any other image and that they'll, they'll, they'll rest in him and they'll be faithful to him and all that. So we, we looked at that last week and I think one person has emailed me and said they listened online, so thank you for for that person, it makes it all incredibly worthwhile. But here we are now at the um, foot of Mount Sinai uh, in the Sinai Desert and Mount Horeb uh, in the Sinai Desert, and um, and we come to this challenging story. Tim Chester, in his uh, commentary uh, Exodus for You, says this: the wedding vows made. It's now as if the husband finds the wife in bed with another man whilst they're still on their honeymoon. That's where, that's where we're going this morning in terms of the, 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 the shocking, challenging significance of what goes on. So this isn't just some interesting story. This is, this is God's people saying to God, I don't want you, even though they've just made their vows together, and goes and sleeps with another man. So that's where we're at, Exodus 32. We're going to read the whole chapter, so buckle up. Okay, so Exodus 32, verse uh, 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long coming down the mountain, by the way, he'd only been there for 40 days. So whatever, I don't know what long for you is, but 40 days. He'd been there about five weeks. And God's giving him instructions of how he's going to dwell with the people. The whole, between the last uh, preacher uh, on uh, the Ten Commandments and where we are now, it's just a whole load of instructions on how God's going to make a tabernacle, a tent, that just means a dwelling place, where God's going to make a dwelling place for him amongst the people. And so there's God is on the mountain kind of go, giving uh, uh, Moses all the details of, this, of his desire to dwell with God's people. And while he's gone, 
they say, whoa, he's been gone a long time. So when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, that's uh, Moses' brother, and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered, take off the gold earrings for, 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 that your wives and sons and daughters were wearing. Remember that they'd, they'd got them from the Egyptians. They'd said to the Egyptians, give us your gold, and the Egyptians had given them their, their gold rings and their earrings, and they'd given them to, um, to, the, uh, to the Israelites. And, and, and we find out uh, that God was planning for them to give their gold to build this tabernacle. But what happens, he says, give us your gold and we'll do this with it. He says, so they took the gold uh, earrings, so the t- people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what's handed to them and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it or shaping it with an engraving tool. Then he said, uh, this, uh, this is your God, this is your God, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt, or these are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built a, an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there'll be a festival for Yahweh. He actually uses God's name there, not, not any other name. There's a festival for Yahweh. So the next day, day the people rose early and sacrificed, burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in an orgy. Some translations say they got up to play. Because obviously we don't like to get to the, what's really going on. They, they got up to an indulge in an orgy, an orgy. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, so go down the mountain, because your people who you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It's interesting, he says, well, see, they're your people, Moses, they don't mind. <laughs> interesting stuff that's going on. It says that you brought out of Egypt have, have corrupted themselves. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they've made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. The Lord says to Moses, I've seen these people, and they're a stiff-necked people. I've seen these uh, uh, now. Leave me alone so my righteous anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Shocking words. Then he says to Moses, And I'll make you a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God, He said, why should your righteous anger burn against your people who you brought out of Egypt with your mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that God brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off of the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember your promises to your servant Isaac and Israel whom you swore by your own self, I will multiply your offspring as the stars in the sky and I'll give your descendants all the land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring his, uh, on his people the disasters he threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant uh, law in his hands. They were inscribed on both, hands, uh, both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God. It was engraved on the tablet, same word as used for engraving the golden calf, just as a freebie there for you. Uh, when, uh, Joseph, uh, sorry, when Joshua, that's Moses' assistant, heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, this is a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not a sound of victory, it is not a sound of defeat, it's a sound of singing that I hear. 
When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf that the people had made and burned it, put it back in the fire, then ground it to a powder, scattering it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Aaron answered, do not let your anger burn hot, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods that will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this scarf. Uh, then Moses saw the people were running wild and then Aaron had let them get out of control and they become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword on his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Tough stuff. The Israelites did as Moses commanded, then, uh, and that day about 3,000 people died. Then Moses said, You've been, you have been set apart for the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he's blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin. I'll go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back up the mountain to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've, they've made themselves gods of gold. Now please forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book you've written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place from which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. Father, we look at these, uh, these words and our first reaction might be to, to look at your reaction and say, how could God do that? How could God order that? How could God feel that? But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't point the finger at you this morning, but allow your word to point the finger at us and think, how could we do the things we do? How could we walk the way we walk? And Lord, we thank you for Moses, who stood in the gap, pleaded for forgiveness and breakthrough, offered himself as a substitute. So Lord, we just pray, teach us this morning through this story. Amen. So Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days, as I said, and God's been giving him instructions about... Um, about how to build this tabernacle. It says, and then verse 1, it says, we say, When the people saw Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who's brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. John Calvin, uh, uh, who's uh, from many centuries ago in Geneva, he kind of said this, and I've paraphrased it for you. He says, This is an utterly stupid loss of perspective. They point to a problem that didn't exist. They were eating the bread of the invisible God. They could see the cloud of God's presence, yet they complained of God's absence. 
They're saying, God, where, where's God? God's abandoned us. But each day they were going out and eating this miraculous bread from heaven. God was providing for them. And they could see in the distance, they could see the cloud of God's presence that had been with them all the way from Egypt, the cloud of God's presence on the mountain. So there was really tangible signs of God's presence, but yet they completely lose perspective and they go, oh dear, poor old us, God's abandoned us. And I think I can easily do that. I can easily forget what God has done. They forget that God has brought them out of slavery just, just 40 days, uh, three months earlier. And now they're saying, where's God? You've abandoned us. He doesn't care. He's not interested. You know, he's left us on our own. And we can do that. I, we can quickly default into self-pity victim mode and fail to see God's hand. It's interesting, Naomi's dad uh, when he prays sometimes, he prays stuff. And you th- I used to think, this, this is an obvious prayer. He'd pray, God, I thank you that, that I've got a, a healthy body. I thank you've got eyes to see and ears to hear. I thank you've got, I've got hands to, to serve. Thank you you've got food on my table. Thank you you've got a place to live. Thank you that, that I've got family that care for me. And he just would pray all the kind of really obvious stuff. And, I, and I've reflected on it over the years and I thought, actually, when you don't do that, and as Steve spoke a few weeks ago brilliantly about us complaining and moaning, when you don't do that, you can think, God, where are you? God, where are you? We take all of God's gifts completely for granted and we say, God, where are you? We lose perspective. Actually, sin is a tragic loss of perspective. To, to say that actually that God's not, not there, that God's not interested, that God doesn't love me, and I'm going to do this because this is going to satisfy me and this is going to be... It's a loss of perspective because God is right there. We can do it. We can be an amazing kind of uh, Sunday meeting. We can be in a conference. We can feel the kind of presence of God. Uh, and then on Sunday, and then on Monday, we're quickly grumbling, moaning, as if Sunday never happened. We can say, God, I thank you that you love me, that you gave your life for me. And then on Monday, we can say, God, what's God done for me? Look at my life. And the people's sinful solution to the perceived absence of God is to make their own God. Now, it's interesting, actually, uh, you don't find many carved idols in, in Cheltenham. Although I was shocked. I, when I was a student here, I used to sometimes go to a church called North Place Evangelical Church, which is now called the Chapel Spa. If anyone been to the Chapel Spa, it's not wrong. I got some tickets to Chapel Spa. We went to the Chapel Spa. What I found most shocking, apart from I'm in my swimming trunks in what used to be the church building, <laughs> you know, in this kind of hot tub sort of stuff, is that they've got loads of little buddies, loads of little buddies around. As if like, well, you know, that's kind of cool and calming, isn't it? I, I, I thought it's, it's kind of strange, you know, but, but generally you don't find little statues around in, um, in, in Cheltenham. You know, you, like I say, you do find Buddhas and little things in chic restaurants and chapel and spas and stuff, but generally our idols are harder to spot. We don't, you don't go into someone's house and say, oh, there's the golden calf in the corner. But Tim Keller does, says this in his book, Counterfeit Gods, a really great book. He says this, it says, it's a long quote, but I think it's right on the money. It says, an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that if you, lose your, if you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be a spouse or family or career or peer approval, affluence or achievement, self-discovery or social standing. 
It can be pleasure or romance, your security or comfort, your beauty or your brains, your personal fulfillment, your moral virtue, or even your Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I had that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I feel secure and significant. There are many ways to describe that relationship to something, but perhaps the best way to describe it is worship. What happens is that in the perceived absence of God, the human heart finds something else. The human heart finds something else to look for, something else to, 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 to worship. And, and sometimes that's not obvious to us, and sometimes it's blindingly obvious. I've, interestingly, my football team have won three matches in a row, which has never happened like in my lifetime, or certainly for a long time. And I find myself strangely drawn, and my wife's going to pick this up on me now, strangely drawn to the Twitter feed, and strangely drawn to these articles. And you read, and I think, man, I'm taking quite a lot of time and energy on this. And then you read guys and they say, you know, I flew here, I went there, you know, I'm more excited that Leeds have won three games than, than on my wedding day, than, you know, when my children were born. And I'm thinking, really? And it's subtle because, you know, it, it, it's, it's a little idol, isn't it? It's a little idol. Now, some things that sometimes idols are not the nasty, horrible things that you think, well, I must have worshipped that. Sometimes they're just kind of neutral things that we just give all our energy to. Even sometimes they're good things. Like we can idolise our family. I was talking to Naomi about how Cheltenham is obsessed with family, obsessed with educating our kids. We can idolise our family. And we can do these things with all sorts of stuff. And it's in, the Israelites, what they say is, we, we want a God that's, that's familiar. We want a God that's, that's there when we want them. Because they'd grown up in Egypt, and in Egypt the gods were all there. They were all animal-headed images, animal-headed statues, and they were in the homes, they were in the temples. They were kind of gods that were reassuringly visible and conveniently available on request. If you've got an idol in the corner, you can say, well, I'll just live my life and do what I want, but when I need, the, when I need God, there he is, right in the corner. I've got him there. Um, he's just kind of like a little god that I keep in my pocket, and I pull him out when I need him. But the rest of the time, I just keep him in there. And it's interesting, if you want a God of your own convenience, the best way to have a God of your own convenience is to make one. Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives and sons and daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So he, he, took, what, so he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with an engraving tool. And he said, this is your God, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival to Yahweh. It seems what happens is if the Israelites think, well, God's abandoned us, and they go to their leader and say, well, come on, do something. Come on, you need to sort this out, do something. And he feels pressure, doesn't know what to do. They say to him, make us gods to go before us. In other words, they're saying, right, we, we, God's abandoned us, so we'll have another God, please. I think Aaron must have felt panicked about this because the first commandment is, don't have any other gods beside me. You tended to jump to Jesus's love the, neighbor, love the Lord and love your neighbor. But, but the first commandment is, don't have any other gods. And immediately they come to Aaron and say, actually, God's abandoned us. I'd quite like another god, please. I think Aaron kind of panics and thinks, oh my word, this is terrible, what can I do? So what he's compromised is he thinks, well, I'll compromise. I won't have them break the first commandment. What I'll do is I'll, 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 I'll break the second commandment. I'll make them a god. So I think he makes this calf and then says, this is Yahweh. 
which is breaking the second commandment, don't make an image of anything. And it's kind of a dumb compromise because he's saying, don't worship any other gods, but actually, here's this God, make Yahweh. And, he, and it's kind of like this strange thing. I thought about it as like this compromise. He thinks that compromise worship to Yahweh is better than no worship at all. Well, as long as the, if we call the idol Yahweh and worship it, then that's good. They, uh, the, the calf is a symbol of, of, of pagan fertility and strength. So, mu- so Aaron's compromise is, well, let's, to stop them breaking the first com- uh, second commandment, uh, uh, to stop them breaking the first commandment, I'll make them break the second. And he blends the stuff together. He blends pagan religion with worship of the Lord. It seems like a good compromise. So they have this feast where it says they give fellowship offerings and, 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 and offerings to God. They make sacrifice to God. And in one sense, you could say, whoa, that looks kind of pretty orthodox. And then the next minute, they often have an orgy. And he's got this kind of blend of what's happened. And I think sometimes churches can do this. Churches can look around and say, hey, society's abandoning God. There's no one who cares about God. What are we going to do? We'd better make this a little bit more funky. There's certain things that we better not talk about, and there's certain things we better talk about. We better, we better mix a little bit of Christianity and prosperity. We better mix a bit of Christianity and self-realization. That's going to work. And I thought about me, and I thought, how will I feel about this kind of half and half, this pick and mix stuff? And I, I, I wrote this. We or I... We like what the Bible says about God's love, but not about his obedience. We like what the Bible says about God's faithfulness to us, but we don't like God's words on sex. We like God's generous blessing to us, but we don't like God's teaching on money. We like the promise of eternal life, but we don't like when God asks for our time. Uh, We like Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, but we're uneasy when he asks us to lay down our uh, priorities. And we end up with a compromise. We end up just the same kind of compromises as Aaron did. We end up with this kind of blend of, this is Yahweh, but really it's not. And compromise worship actually doesn't really create worship of God. It's Aaron's solution is, isn't, well, let's tell them to have a statue and we'll pretend it's God, uh, and then they'll end up worshipping God. What happens is, they don't. Compromise worship always ends up with a God that lets you do what you want. We love to have God... And we call it God, and actually, if you've got a God that lets you, that just makes you do what you want, then you've got a golden calf. Let me give you an example. A guy came to me in the early days of God First, he's not part of us now, and he came to me in the early days of God First, and he said, God has told me to have sex with this other woman and divorce my wife. How do you process that? God has told me, to have sex with this other woman and divorce my wife. I mean, I, I, I said, I don't think so. I don't think so. What's happened is he's got a, he's calling it God has told me, but basically it's just the God of his own desires. It's the God of his own passions. It's the God who lets him do what he wants. People come to, to me often and say, God has told me, but the thing is, if it's not in the Bible, it's a golden calf. It's a golden calf. How do you know if you've got a golden calf in your life? Maybe it's not as obvious as that, that actually that, that I'm married to another woman but I want to have sex with him and God says it's okay. You can read that all over. I'm not going to pick some controversial stuff where people say, God says that's okay. God says that's okay. The God says that's okay. You can do that and do that and they say that's okay. 
How do I know? How do you know if you've got a golden calf, you've got a sacred cow? The reality is, if there are areas in your life that are no-go areas that nobody can speak about or nobody can challenge you about, the no-go areas for discipleship, then you have got a golden calf in your life. If people can't challenge you about your time, your money, uh, your sexual behaviour, your attitudes, how you, if people can't challenge you that, that, and you feel, whoa, that might be a golden calf in life. This is what happens at best. People get defensive about stuff. So I know this in church where you have to, I look and think, should I speak to them about that? Looks a little like a golden calf to be made here. I, and you think, no, I, I, I better not. I don't want to. Because they're going to be defensive. And sometimes you think, well, you better press through. But I know what sometimes happens. At best, people are defensive. They're, oh, don't speak to me about that. But at worst, they blow up and say, this is a terrible church. They challenged me about this. They've handled my situation so badly. I'm off. It's a golden calf. People rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings and afterwards sat down in indulgence and gluttony and drunkenness and an orgy. If you create a God of your own making, you'll end up doing what you want. And actually, what is really interesting is, is when, I, when, I, when I led a church in Manchester, people didn't really bother to hide their golden calves that they carried around with them. It was just like, you know, it was kind of obvious. Whereas Cheltenham, we are very good. We are very good at hiding our little golden calves that we carried around. So we're really, well, I'm fine, I'm sorted. So what would happen in Manchester is people are like, well, I do this, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, I'm doing drugs, I'm gambling away, I'm doing, you know, whatever. But then when you say, come forward and you need God, they'd all pile forward. In Cheltenham, we're like, woo, I'm cool. I don't have any issues, I've got no good areas, I'm fine. Just don't ask me about it. We're good at hiding them from each other, but God sees. God sees. 32 verse 9 says, I have seen these people. It's interesting, it's the same words that God says, I've seen them in slavery, and I've got concern for them, and got compassion. Now he says, I've seen them, and they're messing up. I've seen what they're doing. He says to Moses, says, the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people who you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, made themselves an idol in the shape of a calf. They bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. And they said, these are your gods, Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen these people, they're stiff-necked people. And he says something really challenging. He says, now leave me alone so that my righteousness may burn against them. It's interesting, what's going on here is almost like we've got two, two things going on. We've got like on the mountain and in the camp. We've got on the mountain and in the camp. So there's stuff going on in the mountain between God and Moses and there's stuff going on in the, in the camp between the golden calf and the people. So let's just tease those two out and then we'll, we'll land this down. Okay, so, so on, on the camp it says, when Moses approached the camp he saw the golden calf and the dancing he burned with anger and he threw the tablets out of his hand breaking them into pieces. We're interesting, we're told that Moses is angry, but actually we're told before that that God's angry. It's almost like Moses comes down and sees, like I said, he sees, his, his, he sees God's spouse in bed with another woman. 
Moses approached the camp and he just knows that this is a covenant-breaking thing. So he takes the, takes the, 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 the tablets of stone and smashes them on the ground. And it's not like he's having an angry fit. What he's saying is, this, these promises that you made to God, they're worthless. It's almost like the Israelites, as they made the golden calf, have taken their wedding veils and just torn them up in front of God and said, so what happens is Moses responds to that and says, I just know that what you've done is you've just smashed everything you ever promised. You've just taken your gold rings and you've offered them to another lover. You've, you've committed adultery with, with another God. I thought about this actually and I thought, I don't often feel that if I sin, I don't know if you sin, you probably don't sin, but, but if I sin, I don't often think of it as adultery. I don't often think of it as like I'm, I'm abandoning my love for God and I'm, I'm following another God. But I thought about it and thought, imagine the, the horror of, of Moses, as it were, finding God's wife in bed with someone else. I mean, that's massively challenging, isn't it? But actually, every time you sin, that's what you're doing. You're saying to God, no to you, I'm having this. It's almost like you take the wedding vows and go, I'm done. God describes Israel as stiff-necked. Basically, stiff-necked, I mean, cows are stiff-necked, but it doesn't mean they've sat in the cold and there's been a bit of a draft. What he's saying is they will not bow their heads. They will, I will not bow my head to God. It's this phrase that's used all through the Bible, I will not bow my head to God. They'll easily bow their head to sin, but they will not bow their heads to God. And so what happens is they become like what they worship. Here's interesting, some interesting verses. They become like a stampeding herd of livestock. It says, Moses saw the people were running wild. That sounds like animal language. They were out of control. They were a laughing stock. They become like what you worship. Interesting, idolatry first shapes you. Interesting, uh, Aaron had taken this tool and shaped the idol but eventually what happens is your idols start to shape you. They start to make you in their image. You think I've made God, I've chosen my God and made it in my image. But what happens is it starts to make you in its image. And then slowly and interestingly, idols eat you up on the inside. This is a, a quote from a guy called David Foster Wallace, who's a secular novelist. He said this in 2005 to the graduating class of Kenyon College. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and pretty much every, everyone else, uh, everything else you worship except God, it's staggering, this guy's not a Christian, except God, will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing you die a million deaths, before they finally grieve over you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need more power over others to numb you to your fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It says, but the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconsciously, we're unconsciously destructive of their nature. Idols eat you up. It's not like just God says, don't have the golden calf. 
because he wants us to love him. But actually, there's a destructive part of worshipping this golden calf. It, it, it eats you up. It consumes you on the inside. And, and if you can't relate to any of that, I'm not saying you've got a golden calf, but I'm saying there's, there is an element where you can see that. This kind of never enough culture, this feeling that we've been consumed on the inside. There's some, this insatiable search for where will I find what I'm looking for. You know, you two song, I like to quote them here, still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's this endless, restless search. Augustine says, my soul is at rest until I find my home in God. There's a restless search because you never have enough because your idol will eat you on the inside. It will hollow you out. So it's interesting, what does Moses do? He says, I'm going to throw the, 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 the idol back in the fire, he melts it back down, he puts it, reverses the process, but why does he scour it on the water? Why does, God, why does Moses scatter the gold on the water? Why does God want to scatter it on the water? I think two things. Because he wants to understand that idols consume you, and he wants, so he wants them to consume the idol. And then Tim Chester says, I think, whoa! There's no nice way to say this, but Moses wants to see their idols in their excrement as what they are, excrement. You would see the gold in your poo. You would. Because Moses wants us to realise that's what it does to us. It destroys and debases and undermines and makes you feel like, I'm not going to say the word, but you can fill it in. Moses confronts his brother. His brother doesn't fess up. He says, do not let your anger burn against me, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know that how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So they took off. So he told them, so I told them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave him the gold and threw it in the fire and out came the calf. What's going on here? He's blame shifting and he's lying the calf just popped out of the fire yeah it's just nonsense but I know what I'm like when I when when I'm challenged about my sin or I know what you're like when you're challenged about sin the temptation is to just make it a little not so bad as it was so I was talking to a guy yesterday and he said he was he's in a town not this town he said a guy who led a, a big church came to him and said I feel attracted to my PA but I think it's okay and the guy said, you know, okay, let's pray. And it's good you've got it under control. Two years later, it comes out. He's having an affair with his PA. The church blows. Why, Why did he want to say a little bit? That's our temptation. We'll just say a little bit. Yeah, I struggle with porn, but I'm good. You know, I'm good. Yeah, I've got an issue with gambling, but hey, I'm good. You know, my money and my credit card's out of control. Yeah, but I'm good. We like to just make it a little bit. And Moses, he said, well, you know, somebody else's fault. I don't want really to tell the truth. It just came out of the, I was just in the betting shop and bang, before I know it, I betted all my week's wages away. Didn't know what happened. Out of the fire comes this calf. Don't admit to it. Don't repent. Just tries to cover up. Tries to say, well, you, if you really knew what my marriage was like, you'd understand. If you really knew the pressure I was on, then you'd understand. He seeks, instead of seeking forgiveness, we blame shift and self-justify. 
let's put this up and out because it does have a good ending. Well, no, it's a bit more heavy stuff before we go. It says, Moses stood at the end of the camp and said this, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. There's going to be judgment. He says, now come, come to me. If you're on the Lord's side, come to me. Now you'd expect at that point, lots of them would come. But actually not many come, about 10% come. And the rest just went, carry on with their, their partying. Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. There's always a call for salvation. God will never leave you with, look, there's a chance now, come. Escape judgment, escape the consequences of your idolatry. Come and be on the Lord's side. And then I don't understand this, and I'm not going to even try and unpack it. It says, but, but judgment comes, and 3,000 people are killed, and a plague is unleashed. It's interesting, we've seen plagues before, haven't we? They're like God's battle against Egypt's gods. You worship Egypt's gods, it's like saying, bring the plague on down. Again, Tim Chester says this, this incident reveals the deadly seriousness of sin. Temptation presents sin as attractive and harmless, but in reality, sin looks like 3,000 rotten corpses. Death is sin made visible. You watch the news, death is sin made visible. In Syria, in Iraq, in Africa, in the financial centers. Sin, death is sin made visible. But there's another perspective on the mountain as we finish. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen these people and those stick-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my righteous anger may burn against them and destroy them. And I'll make you a great nation. Do you find that at all disturbing? God says, leave me alone. And in my anger, I'm going to destroy all the people. Do you find that disturbing? I find that disturbing. It's like God is saying, I'm, I'm so ticked off, I'm going to destroy. My wife's been found in bed with another woman, I'm going to kill her. Oof. Oof. He says to Moses, actually, I'm done with these people. I'm going to start with you. And when you read that, what would you do? What, what do you think that's a call to do? I think it's a challenging one. Because for me, I'd be thinking, hey, God's decided to choose me. He's decided to bless me. He's decided to put his favor on me. You know, the church down the road is having problems. You know, if, this, if I'd been out of town when it all blew up in that other church, they're having problems. Hey, but now God's going to make us great because they're all going to come here. It's, it's, it's awful, isn't it? You know, they've done badly. That means I'm going to be blessed. So I don't care about them. I'm going to get blessed. Moses, I'm going to make you a great nation. Moses probably thought, great, all my days have come true. All my dreams have come true. God is not saying to Moses, fine, I'm a sulky teenager and I'm going to wipe out that and I'm going to make you great. I think he's challenging him to a call to prayer. Moses understands far from a call to leave God alone, it's a call actually not to leave God alone, but to pray. We know that because of what Moses does. Moses intercedes with God on Israel's behalf. He doesn't say, I totally agree with you. You should wipe them out and start again. He goes, what? God, that is not right. I feel uneasy about that. God, there must be something else. So it says, Moses implored the Lord his God, and he said, Who sh why should your righteous anger burn against your people, who you brought out of Egypt with your great power? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them on the mountains and wipe them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, relent, and from this, from this disaster against your people. 
Remember your servants, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom you swore by yourself, I will multiply your offering as the stars in the sky, and I'll give, them your, give your descendants all this land I promised them to be an inheritance for them. What does Moses do? He prays. When, the, when you see the world in a mess, you're to pray. You're not supposed to say, God, the world's a mess, wipe them out. You're supposed to say the world's in a mess. When you see famine, you're supposed to give your money, but you're all supposed to pray, God, do something. God, do something. He pleads with God on basis of God's character. He says, God, you're not a liar. You're not evil. Nobody's, you know, if you destroy these people, people are going to say you're evil. If you don't keep your promise, people are going to say you're a liar. But we know you're not a liar. You're good and you're faithful. God wants us to pray. Prayer is an appeal to God's character. He wants us to plead his goodness and faithfulness. God intends our prayers to be a means he changes the world. It's not like you don't say, God, forget it, just destroy the world. Our prayer should be, God, you're good and you want to save and you're faithful. Please save the world. Please change the world. If we don't pray, I thought this as I'm finishing off this morning, if we don't pray, it's probably because we don't believe that God is good. We don't believe that God is powerful, but we don't believe he's faithful to his promise. That we just think, well, God, just get on with it. Just, we'll leave you alone, God, and you just can judge the world and we're fine. Let the world go to hell. We don't care. My prayerlessness says that. But my prayer says, God, you're good. And you're faithful and you promise. What about my friends, my neighbours, my work colleagues? What about them? What about the world? What about the leadership I see? What about the political stuff that's messes up? God, would you come and intervene? That's why we're asked to pray for our leaders. God hears. But there's still a problem. There's a problem of sin. Moses says to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord. This is, this is super stuff. It's good after the heavy stuff, this is good. He says, but you've committed a great sin, but I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. I don't know if anyone's ever really hurt you or anybody's really done something so hard to you or sinned against you. Our first reaction is to make them pay. Our first reaction is, you have done this to me, I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to tell you what you've done. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to reject you. I'm going to turn my back on you. I'm going to speak badly about your reputation. I am going to make you pay. Because the truth is, somebody's got to pay. But forgive, and and when that happens, evil just wins. You make them pay, and then they make you pay, and and it's just this cycle of bitterness and anger. We're doing some marriage prep with some people, uh, the other night, Naomi and I, and, and these, this, this couple are not like bitter and anger, but I said, you know, if you don't forgive, it's like drinking poison and hoping your enemy dies. You know, that's what unforgiveness does. It eats you up like an idolater. It eats you up, and it also, it never sets the person free. It's saying, you've got to pay. But the other way is you can forgive and absorb the cost yourself. But it costs you to say. It costs God to say, I found you in bed with someone else, and I'm, I'm going to forgive you. Of costs. Moses says this, he says, I'll pay. 
They've committed a great sin. But now forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. Moses understands that, that actually this stuff that, that the people have done, what's happened on the, on the, on the, on the, down on the camp with, 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 with kind of some pictures of judgment and stuff, is only, it's only partial. In, in the end, there's something serious has got to happen. And, 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 and Moses is, imagines almost like this book that, that's got this list uh, of people and, and he's imagining people run out. I don't know if you've ever been to a club. You, you probably don't go to clubs. If you've been to a club, you know, they, they like, the, what's the line? Your name is not on the list, you can't come in. Yeah? You know, sorry, you're not on the list. So in fact, Jotham went out for his, uh, his birthday the other day, and all his friends got in the club, and then he got to the door, and they said, oh, you can't come in. Like, there wasn't a list, but you know, you know that. It's like, so, and Moses imagines, like, there's a, there's a, a list of names, and then he says... All of Israel's names are going to be rubbed out. You can't come in. You can't come in. So Moses says, let's make a deal. Don't rub their names from the list of life. Rub my name out. Block me out. Rub me out. I lay down my life so that my people, your people, can have life. God relents and doesn't judge Israel. But interestingly, Moses' offer is not accepted. He doesn't say, fine, I'll, I'll blot you out, Moses. Bec but he says this. He says, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. What is going to happen? You know this, because we land here every week. <laughs> because he's in the story every week. Who's this? There was a day when God would visit. When God would become a man, born as one of us would make an atonement for our sin, substituting himself for us, dying on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed, absorbing in himself the cost of our idolatry, bearing the crushing pain of our adulterous unfaithfulness. In the darkness, his life was blotted out. The sin of his people was visited on him. But that's not the end of the story. He's a better Moses. Moses says, I'll offer my life in exchange for these people that their foolishness might be forgiven. God says, no, you can't do that. But God takes his own son. He says, I'll lay down my life that these people might be free and forgiven. And what does, God, what does Jesus doing now? It says in Ephesians chapter 7, verse 6, it says, Jesus lives forever a permanent priest, a mediator, so he's able to save completely those who come through him to God because he ever lives to pray for them. He's doing what Moses did. Jesus doing what Moses did. When he sees your brokenness and foolishness, he do, he's saying, God, forgive them. His blood pleads from the ground, like, 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 like in the story in Genesis. God's blood, Jesus' blood pleads. He's saying to his Father, love them and forgive them. And it's not that the Father needs persuading, but he looks on the blood he look, and he says, I've blotted you out, so these don't need to be blotted out. Jesus is risen eternally in the presence of the Father, guaranteeing that we're never going to be blotted out. Andrew Wilson says this, we build our golden calf as a substitute for God. But God comes and gives his life as a substitute for us. Mm -hmm.
For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.